Section 17 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Wednesday, 29th September. After a very good sleep, I rose more refreshed than I had been for some nights. We were now at but a little distance from the shore and saw the sea from our windows, which made our voyage seem nearer. Mr. Macpherson's manners and address pleased us much. He appeared to be a man of such intelligence and taste as to be sensible of the extraordinary powers of his illustrious guest. He said to me, Dr. Johnson is an honour to mankind, and if the expression may be used, is an honour to religion. Col, who had gone yesterday to pay a visit at Camus Cross, joined us this morning at breakfast. Some other gentlemen also came to enjoy the entertainment of Dr. Johnson's conversation. The day was windy and rainy, so that we had just seized a happy interval for our journey last night. We had good entertainment here, better accommodation than at Corrichatachin, and time enough to ourselves. The hours slipped along imperceptibly. We talked of Shenston. Dr. Johnson said he was a good layer out of land, but would not allow him to approach excellence as a poet. He said he believed he had tried to read all his love pastorals, but did not get through them. I repeated the stanza, She gazed as I slowly withdrew, my path I could hardly discern. So sweetly she bade me adieu, I thought that she bade me return. He said, that seems to be pretty. I observed that Shenston, from his short maxims in prose, appeared to have some power of thinking, but Dr. Johnson would not allow him that merit. He agreed, however, with Shenston that it was wrong in the brother of one of his correspondents to burn his letters, for, said he, Shenston was a man whose correspondence was an honour. He was this afternoon full of critical severity, and dealt about his censures on all sides. He said Hammond's love elegies were poor things. He spoke contemptuously of our lively and elegant, though too licentious lyric bard, Hambry Williams, and said he had no fame but from boys who drank with him. While he was in this mood, I was unfortunate enough, simply perhaps, but I could not help thinking undeservedly to come within the whiff and wind of his fell sword. I asked him if he had ever been accustomed to wear a nightcap. He said, no. I asked if it was best not to wear one. Johnson, sir, I had this custom by chance, and perhaps no man shall ever know whether it is best to sleep with or without a nightcap. Soon afterwards he was laughing at some deficiency in the highlands, and said, one might as well go without shoes and stockings. Thinking to have a little hit at his own deficiency, I ventured to add, or without a nightcap, sir. But I had better have been silent, for he retorted directly, I do not see the connection there, laughing. Nobody for was ever foolish enough to ask whether it was best to wear a nightcap or not. This comes of being a little wrong-headed. He carried the company along with him, and yet the truth is that if he had always worn a nightcap, as is the common practice, and found the Highlanders did not wear one, he would have wondered at their barbarity, so that my hit was fair enough. Thursday, 30th September. 
there was as great a storm of wind and rain as i have almost ever seen which necessarily confined us to the house but we were fully compensated by dr johnson's conversation he said he did not grudge burke's being the first man in the house of commons for he was the first man everywhere but he grudged that a fellow who makes no figure in company and has a mind as narrow as the neck of a vinegar cruet should make a figure in the house of commons merely by having the knowledge of a few forms and being furnished with a little occasional information he told us the first time he saw dr young was at the house of mr richardson the author of clarissa he was sent for that the doctor might read to him his conjectures on original composition which he did and dr johnson made his remarks and he was surprised to find young receive as novelties what he thought very common maxims he said he believed young was not a great scholar nor had studied regularly the art of writing that there were very fine things in his night thoughts though you could not find twenty lines together without some extravagance he repeated two passages from his love of fame the characters of brunetta and stella which he praised highly he said young pressed him much to come to welwyn he always intended it but never went he was sorry when young died the cause of quarrel between young and his son he told us was that his son insisted young should turn away a clergyman's widow who lived with him and who having acquired great influence over the father was saucy to the son dr johnson said she could not conceal her resentment at him for saying to young that an old man should not resign himself to the management of anybody i asked him if there was any improper connection between them no sir no more than between two statues he was past four score and she a very coarse woman she read to him and i suppose made his coffee and frothed his chocolate and did such things as an old man wishes to have done for him dr doddridge being mentioned he observed that he was the author of one of the finest epigrams in the english language it is in orton's life of him the subject is his family motto dum vivimus vivamus which in its primary signification is to be sure not very suitable to a christian divine but he paraphrased it thus live while you live the epicure would say and seize the pleasures of the present day live while you live the sacred preacher cries and give to god each moment as it flies lord in my views let both united be i live in pleasure when i live to thee i asked if it was not strange that government should permit so many infidel writings to pass without censure johnson sir it is mighty foolish it is for want of knowing their own power the present family on the throne came to the crown against the will of nine-tenths of the people whether those nine-tenths were right or wrong it is not our business now to inquire but such being the situation of the royal family they were glad to encourage all who would be their friends now you know every bad man is a whig every man who has loose notions the church was all against this family they were as i say glad to encourage any friends and therefore since their accession there is no instance of any man being kept back on account of his bad principles and hence this inundation of impiety i observed that mr hume some of whose writings were very unfavourable to religion was however a tory 
"'Johnson, sir, Hume is a Tory by chance as being a Scotchman, "'but not upon a principle of duty, for he has no principle. "'If he has anything, he is a hobbist.' "'There was something not quite serene in his humour tonight after supper, "'for he spoke of hastening away to London without stopping much at Edinburgh. "'I reminded him that he had General Orton and many others to see. "'Johnson.' "'Nay, I shall neither go in jest nor stay in jest. "'I shall do what is fit.' "'Boswell. "'Aye, sir, but all I desire is that you will let me tell you when it is fit.' "'Johnson. "'Sir, I shall not consult you.' "'Boswell. "'If you are to run away from us as soon as you get loose, "'we will keep you confined in an island.' "'He was, however, on the whole, very good company.' Mr. Donald MacLeod expressed very well the gradual impression made by Dr. Johnson on those who were so fortunate as to obtain his acquaintance. When you see him first, you are struck with awful reverence, then you admire him, and then you love him cordially. I read this evening some part of Voltaire's History of the War in 1741, and of Lord Kames against hereditary indefeasible right. This is a very slight circumstance with which I should not trouble my reader, but for the sake of observing that every man should keep minutes of whatever he reads. Every circumstance of his studies should be recorded, what books he has consulted, how much of them he has read, at what times, how often the same authors, and what opinions he formed of them at different periods of his life. Such an account would much illustrate the history of his mind. Friday, 1st October I showed to Dr. Johnson verses in a magazine on his dictionary, composed of uncommon words taken from it. Little of anthropopathy has he, etc. He read a few of them and said, I am not answerable for all the words in my dictionary. I told him that Garrick kept a book of all who had either praised or abused him. On the subject of his own reputation he said, now that I see it has been so current a topic, I wish I had done so too, but it could not well be done now, as so many things are scattered in newspapers. He said he was angry at a boy of Oxford who wrote in his defence against Kenrick, because it was doing him hurt to answer Kenrick. He was told afterwards the boy was to come to him to ask a favour. He first thought to treat him rudely on account of his meddling in that business, but then he considered he had meant to do him all the service in his power, and he took another resolution. He told him he would do what he could for him, and did so, and the boy was satisfied. He said he did not know how his pamphlet was done, as he had read very little of it. The boy made a good figure at Oxford, but died. He remarked that attacks on authors did them much service. A man who tells me my play is very bad is less my enemy than he who lets it die in silence. A man whose business it is to be talked of is much helped by being attacked. Garrick, I observed, had been often so helped. Johnson, yes, sir, though Garrick had more opportunities than almost any man to keep the public in mind of him by exhibiting himself to such numbers he would not have had so much reputation had he not been so much attacked. Every attack produces a defence, and so attention is engaged. There is no sport in mere praise when people are all of a mind. Boswell. Then Hume is not the worse for Beatty's attack? 
Johnson. He is, because Beatty has confuted him. I do not say, but that there may be some attacks which will hurt an author. Though Hume suffered from Beatty, he was the better for other attacks. He certainly could not include in that number those of Dr. Adams and Mr. Teitler. Boswell. Goldsmith is the better for attacks. Johnson. Yes, sir, but he does not think so yet. When Goldsmith and I published, each of us something, at the same time, we were given to understand that we might review each other. Goldsmith was for accepting the offer. I said no. Set reviewers at defiance. It was said to old Bentley upon the attacks against him, Why, they'll write you down. No, sir, he replied. Depend upon it, no man was ever written down but by himself. He observed to me afterwards that the advantages authors derived from attacks were chiefly in subjects of taste, where you cannot confute, as so much may be said on either side. He told me he did not know who was the author of The Adventures of a Guinea, but that the bookseller had sent the first volume to him in manuscript to have his opinion if it should be printed, and he thought it should. The weather being now somewhat better, Mr. James MacDonald, factor to Sir Alexander MacDonald in Slate, insisted all the company at Ostig should go to the house at Armidale, which Sir Alexander had left, having gone with his lady to Edinburgh, and be his guests, till we had an opportunity of sailing to Mull. We accordingly got there to dinner, and passed our day very cheerfully, being no less than fourteen in number. Saturday, 2nd October. Dr. Johnson said that a chief and his lady should make their house like a court. They should have a certain number of the gentlemen's daughters to receive their education in the family, to learn pastry and such things from the housekeeper, and manners from my lady. That was the way in the great families in Wales. At Lady Salisbury's, Mrs. Thrale's grandmothers, and at Lady Phillips. I distinguish the families by the ladies, as I speak of what was properly their province. There are always six young ladies at Sir John Phillips. When one was married, her place was filled up. There was a large schoolroom where they learnt needlework and other things. I observed that at some courts in Germany there were academies for the pages who were the sons of gentlemen and received their education without any expense to their parents. Dr. Johnson said that manners were best learnt at those courts. You admitted with great facility to the prince's company, and yet must treat him with much respect. At a great court you are at such a distance that you get no good. I said, very true, a man sees the court of Versailles as if he saw it on a theatre. He said, the best book that ever was written upon good breeding, Il Corteggiano, by Castiglione, grew up at the little court of Urbino and you should read it. I am glad always to have his opinion of books. At Mr. Macpherson's he commended Whitby's commentary, and said he had heard him called rather lax, but he did not perceive it. He had looked at a novel called The Man of the World as Razi, but thought there was nothing in it. He said today while reading my journal, This will be a great treasure to us some years hence. Talking of a very penurious gentleman of our acquaintance, he observed that he exceeded Lavar in the play. I concurred with him, and remarked that he would do well if introduced in one of Foote's farces, that the best way to get it done would be to bring Foote to be entertained at his house for a week, and then it would be facit indignatio. 
"'Johnson, sir, I wish he had him. "'I, who have eaten his bread, will not give him to him, "'but I should be glad he came honestly by him.' "'He said he was angry at Thrale "'for sitting at General Oglethorpe's without speaking. "'He censured a man for degrading himself to a non-entity. "'I observed that Goldsmith was on the other extreme, "'for he spoke at all ventures. "'Johnson, yes, sir.' Goldsmith, rather than not speak, will talk of what he knows himself to be ignorant, which can only end in exposing him. I wonder, said I, if he feels that he exposes himself, if he was with two tailors. Or with two founders, said Dr. Johnson, interrupting me. He would fall a-talking on the method of making cannon, though both of them would soon see that he did not know what metal a cannon is made of. We were very social and merry in his room this forenoon. In the evening the company danced as usual. We performed with much activity a dance which I suppose the emigration from Skye has occasioned. They call it America. Each of the couples, after the common involutions and evolutions, successively whirls round in a circle till all are in motion, and the dance seems intended to show how emigration catches till a whole neighbourhood is set afloat. Mrs. McKinnon told me that last year, when a ship sailed from Portree for America, the people on shore were almost distracted when they saw their relations go off. They laid down on the ground, tumbled and tore the grass with their teeth. This year there was not a tear shed. The people on shore seemed to think that they would soon follow. This indifference is a mortal sign for the country. We danced tonight to the music of the bagpipe, which made us beat the ground with prodigious force. I thought it better to endeavour to conciliate the kindness of the people of Skye by joining heartily in their amusements than to play the abstract scholar. I looked on this tour to the Hebrides as a co-partnership between Dr. Johnson and me. Each was to do all he could to promote its success and I have some reason to flatter myself that my gayer exertions were of service to us. Dr. Johnson's immense fund of knowledge and wit was a wonderful source of admiration and delight to them, but they had it only at times, and they required to have the intervals agreeably filled up, and even little elucidations of his learned text. I was also fortunate enough frequently to draw him forth to talk, when he would otherwise have been silent. The fountain was at times locked up, till I opened the spring. It was curious to hear the Hebrideans, when any dispute happened while he was out of the room, saying, "'Stay till Dr. Johnson comes. Say that to him.' Yesterday Dr. Johnson said, "'I cannot but laugh to think of myself roving among the Hebrides at sixty. I wonder where I shall rove at fourscore.' This evening he disputed the truth of what is said as to the people of St Kilda catching cold whenever strangers come. How can there, said he, be a physical effect without a physical cause? He added, laughing, the arrival of a ship full of strangers would kill them, for if one stranger gives them one cold, two strangers must give them two colds, and so in proportion. I wanted to hear him ridicule this, as he had praised Macaulay for putting it in his book, saying that it was manly in him to tell a fact, however strange, if he himself believed it. He said the evidence was not adequate to the improbability of the thing, 
that if a physician rather disposed to be incredulous should go to St Kilda and report the fact, then he would begin to look about him. They said it was annually proved by MacLeod's steward, on whose arrival all the inhabitants caught cold. He jocularly remarked, the steward always comes to demand something from them, and so they fool a coughing. I suppose the people in Sky all take a cold when, naming a certain person, comes. They said he came only in summer. Johnson, that is out of tenderness to you. Bad weather and he at the same time would be too much. Sunday, 3rd October. Joseph reported that the wind was still against us. Dr. Johnson said, A wind or not a wind, that is the question. For he can amuse himself at times with a little play of words, or rather sentences. I remember when he turned his cup at Aberbrothick, where we drank tea, he muttered, Claudite yam rivos puri. I must again and again apologise to fastidious readers for recording such minute particulars. They prove the scrupulous fidelity of my journal. Dr. Johnson said it was a very exact picture of a portion of his life. While we were chatting in the indolent style of men who were to stay here all this day at least, we were suddenly roused at being told that the wind was fair, that a little fleet of herring buses was passing by for Mull, and that Mr. Simpson's vessel was about to sail. Hugh MacDonald the skipper came to us and was impatient that we should get ready, which we soon did. Dr. Johnson, with composure and solemnity, repeated the observation of Epictetus that as man has the voyage of death before him, whatever may be his employment, he should be ready at the master's call and an old man should never be far from this shore, lest he should not be able to get himself ready. He rowed, and I and the other gentlemen walked about an English mile to the shore where the vessel lay. Dr. Johnson said he should never forget Skye, and returned thanks for all civilities. We were carried to the vessel in a small boat which she had, and we set sail very briskly about one o'clock. I was much pleased with the motion for many hours. Dr. Johnson grew sick and retired under cover as it rained a good deal. I kept above that I might have fresh air, and finding myself not affected by the motion of the vessel, I exulted in being a stout seaman, while Dr. Johnson was quite in a state of annihilation. But I was soon humbled, for after imagining that I could go with ease to America or the East Indies, I became very sick, but kept above board, though it rained hard. As we had been detained so long in sky by bad weather, we gave up the scheme that Col had planned for us of visiting several islands, and contented ourselves with the prospect of seeing Mull and Ilcomkill and Inch Kenneth, which lie near to it. Mr. Simpson was sanguine in his hopes for a while, the wind being fair for us. He said he would land us at Inkelm Kill that night. But when the wind failed, it was resolved we should make for the sound of Mull and land in the harbour of Tobermory. We kept near the five herring vessels for some time, but afterwards four of them got before us, and one little wherry fell behind us. When we got in full view of the point of Ardnamurchan, the wind changed and was directly against our getting into the sound. 
we were then obliged to tack and get forward in that tedious manner. As we advanced, the storm grew greater and the sea very rough. Col then began to talk of making for Egg or Canna or his own island. Our skipper said he would get us into the sound. Having struggled for this a good while in vain, he said he would push forward till we were near the land of Mull, where we might cast anchor and lie till the morning. For although before this there had been a good moon, and I had pretty distinctly seen not only the land of Mull, but up the Sound and the country of Morven as at one end of it, the night was now grown very dark. Our crew consisted of one MacDonald, our skipper, and two sailors, one of whom had but one eye. Mr. Simpson himself, Cole, and Hugh MacDonald, his servant, all helped. Simpson said he would willingly go for Cole if young Cole or his servant would undertake to pilot us to a harbour, but as the island is low land, it was dangerous to run upon it in the dark. Cole and his servant appeared a little dubious. The scheme of running for Canna seemed then to be embraced, but Canna was ten leagues off, all out of our way, and they were afraid to attempt the harbour of Egg. All these different plans were successfully in agitation. The old skipper still tried to make for the land of Mull, but then it was considered that there was no place there where we could anchor in safety. Much time was lost in striving against the storm. At last it became so rough and threatened to be so much worse that Colin, his servant, took more courage and said they would undertake to hit one of the harbours in Col. "'Then let us run for it in God's name,' said the skipper, and instantly we turned towards it. The little wherry which had fallen behind us had hard work. The master begged that, if we made for Col, we should put out a light to him. Accordingly, one of the sailors waved a glowing peat for some time. The various difficulties that were started gave me a good deal of apprehension, from which I was relieved when I found we were to run for a harbour before the wind. But my relief was but of short duration, for I soon heard that our sails were very bad, and were in danger of being torn in pieces, in which case we should be driven upon the rocky shore of Col. It was very dark, and there was a heavy and incessant rain. The sparks of the burning peat flew so much about that I dreaded the vessel might take fire. Then, as Col was a sportsman and had powder on board, I figured that we might be blown up. Simpson and he appeared a little frightened, which made me more so, and the perpetual talking, or rather shouting, which was carried on in Erse, alarmed me still more. A man is always suspicious of what is saying in an unknown tongue, and if fear be his passion at the time, he grows more afraid. Our vessel often lay so much on one side that I trembled lest she should be overset, and indeed they told me afterwards that they had run her sometimes to within an inch of the water, so anxious were they to make what haste they could before the night should be worse. I now saw what I never saw before, a prodigious sea with immense billows coming upon a vessel so that it seemed hardly possible to escape. There was something grandly horrible in the sight. I am glad I have seen it once. Amidst all these terrifying circumstances 
I endeavoured to compose my mind. It was not easy to do it, for all the stories that I had heard of the dangerous sailing among the Hebrides, which is proverbial, came full upon my recollection. When I thought of those who were dearest to me, and would suffer severely should I be lost, I upbraided myself, as not having a sufficient cause for putting myself in such danger. Piety afforded me comfort, yet I was disturbed by the objections that had been made against a particular providence, and by the arguments of those who maintain that it is in vain to hope that the petitions of an individual, or even of congregations, can have any influence with the deity. Objections which have been often made, and which Dr. Hawkesworth has lately revived in his preface to the voyages to the South Seas, but Dr. Ogden's excellent doctrine on the efficacy of intercession prevailed. It was half an hour after eleven before we set ourselves in the course for Col. As I saw them all busy doing something, I asked Col with much earnestness what I could do. He, with a happy readiness, put into my hand a rope which was fixed to the top of one of the masts, and told me to hold it till he bade me pull. If I had considered the matter, I might have seen that this could not be of the least service, but his object was to keep me out of the way of those who were busy working the vessel, and at the same time to divert my fear by employing me and making me think that I was of use. Thus did I stand firm to my post, while the wind and rain beat upon me, always expecting a call to pull my rope. The man with one eye steered. Old MacDonald and Col and his servant lay upon the forecastle, looking sharp out for the harbour. It was necessary to carry much cloth as they turned it, that is to say, much sail in order to keep the vessel off the shore of Col. This made violent plunging in a rough sea. At last they spied the harbour of Lochian, and Col cried, Thank God we are safe. We ran up till we were opposite to it, and soon afterwards we got into it and cast anchor. Dr. Johnson had all this time been quiet and unconcerned. He had lain down on one of the beds, and having got free from sickness, was satisfied. The truth is, he knew nothing of the danger we were in, but fearless and unconcerned might have said in the words which he had chosen for the motto to his rambler, Quo mi cunqui rapid tempestas deferor hospes. Once, during the doubtful consultations, he asked whither we were going, and upon being told that it was not certain whether to mull or coll, he cried, Coll for my money! I now went down with Coll and Mr. Simpson to visit him. He was lying in philosophic tranquillity, with a greyhound of Coll's at his back, keeping him warm. Coll is quite the juvenis qui gaudit canibus. He had, when we left Talisker, two greyhounds, two terriers, a pointer, and a large Newfoundland water-dog. He lost one of his terriers by the road, but had still five dogs with him. I was very ill, and very desirous to get to shore. When I was told that we could not land that night, as the storm had now increased, I looked so miserably, as Coll afterwards informed me, that what Shakespeare has made the Frenchman say of the English soldiers when scantily dieted, piteous they will look, like drowned mice. 
might, I believe, have been well applied to me. There was in the harbour before us a Campbellton vessel, the Betty, Kenneth Morrison master taking in kelp and bound for Ireland. We sent our boat to beg beds for two gentlemen, and that the master would send his boat which was larger than ours. He accordingly did so, and Col and I were accommodated in his vessel till the morning. End of section 17